2: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. What's next for Connecticut State Colleges and University System, now that an accrediting body rejected a plan to merge 12 community colleges into one school? We'll get reaction from faculty and staff, and we want to hear from you, especially if you're a student. That's later. We'll also learn more about a ballot question coming before state voters this November. It centers on greater transparency when state lands are up for sale. It also stems from a controversial land deal known as the Haddam Land Swap, More on that coming up. Also, do you know what happened during the final days of the Connecticut General Assembly's legislative session? There was a bipartisan budget deal and lots of votes on bills you may not know anything about. Do you have a question about what did or didn't make it through? You can join the conversation 860-275-7266. You can email us where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. I want to welcome back to the show Christine Stewart, editor in chief at ctnewsjunkie.com. Christine, welcome to the show. Good morning. Before we get into the legislative session, we should mention there was a big convention this weekend. You spent a lot of time there. Uh, there are um, some candidates heading to the Republican primary
0: in August. Tell us who. There are. So there could be as many as seven candidates headed there. Um, at the convention this weekend, they chose uh, three of them to be on the primary ballot, and they endorsed uh, Danbury Mayor Mark Boughton. Um, but we also have uh, Tim Herbst, the former first selectman of Trumbull, who made the ballot, and Steve Opsitnik. Uh, Westport businessman who who was able to make the ballot. Um, so we had uh, seven going in. Um, and then we had the two candidates who are um, pretty much self-financing their campaigns who were there at the convention, but they weren't um, they weren't participating in the process, David Stemmerman and Bob Stefanowski. Um, and so we have Mike Handler, who's the chief financial officer of Stanford, who Was it Mark Candler? No, it was Mike Mike Candler, Candler. yeah. And then we have. uh, Mark (laughs) Loretti. Mark Loretti. And then we have um, Representative Prasad Srinivasan. And those two, Mike Candler and Prasad uh, Srinivasan, dropped out on the first ballot. Um, And then we have uh, Peter Lamage, who was not able to secure the 15%. It looked, going into, he was able to make it to the second ballot. And there, for a time, looked like he was going to be able to win some support and get the 15%. If you get 15% on any of these ballots, you're able to get onto the primary ballot. So um, they were able to avoid or to keep um, Peter Lamage, who represents the conservative kind of right wing group of the party that's very fiercely loyal. Um and so, you know, there were some some people at the convention who were kind of nervous about him being able to gain ballot access. So they were able to deny him that. But there could be up to 7.
2: Up to 7. Yes. Has that ever has that ever happened um, before for for 7 GOP candidates possibly heading into the primary? I, and what would that mean? Maybe 25, 30,000 votes could be the the top vote getter?
0: Uh, yeah. I mean, you don't you wouldn't really need very many. I see there's, you know, there's more than four hundred and fifty thousand Republicans in the state and so, so half um, of them might
2: turn up for the primary. So ha- yeah.
0: but the the petitioning process is very hard. Um so you're gonna need ten thousand signatures of registered Republicans. And let's face it, voters of Connecticut are very smart, but there's a lot of voters who don't even know how they're registered. You know, are they registered with the party? Are they unaffiliated? Are they, you know, are they Democrats? Some people, you know, if you sign the form, you're you're verifying that you are registered as a Republican, and it's only the Republican voters who would count towards this 10,000 that they they need to get certified. So,
2: and they have till June 12th till June 12th
0: this. to do this. So this is a very daunting a daunting task because there's no real concentration of Republicans in the state of Connecticut. There's no like one central place where you can go and collect thousands of signatures at a time. Mm-hmm.
2: So just to recap, uh, Danbury Mayor Mark Boughton, uh, former selectmen of Trumbull, Tim Herps, and Westport businessman Steve Absitnik all headed uh, to the primary because they got at least 15 percent? Correct. And yes. then you have uh, possibly four other candidates who have to gather signatures uh, to make it to the, the GOP primary. Uh, what about the lieutenant governor's race? So there was, seemed to be some last minute maneuvering. Who's, who's the likely uh, candidates to head towards the primary?
0: Yeah. So on Friday, when we were getting to the convention hall, um, the convention was held at Foxwoods Casino. Uh, it was a Republican convention, by the way. Yes, at Foxwoods Casino. Erin um, Stewart was announcing that she was dropping down to run for the lieutenant governor. Um, so we have uh, new, new Britain Mayor Erin Stewart. We have uh, first uh, select woman of Darien, Jamie Stevenson. And then you have uh, Senator Joe Markley. Um, who was able to get the endorsement of the party and has been running for lieutenant governor for a while? And lieutenant governor candidates run separately from the gubernatorial candidates in the primary. But after the primary, the two of them are married to one ticket.
2: What happened with uh, the New Britain mayor, uh, Aaron Stewart? I, wasn't she be, being called a possible front runner? and now she's ahead? Of, she didn't even get the the nomination, uh, endorsement at the at the convention.
0: You know, admittedly, so she got into the race very late. She got into the race at the end of January. She was able to do pretty well with with financing, and she was raising more money per day than than the men in the race who had been in the race for much longer. Um, But she wasn't able to get the delegate support. I mean, you know, these are fewer than 2,000 delegates, and they've been talking to these candidates for over a year now and and pledging their support and getting to know them. And um, she was just not able, she already knew going in that she wouldn't have the delegate support she needed for the nomination.
2: And we, a lot of attention on the gubernatorial race, but there's also uh, Attorney General and and State Treasurer, Mm -hmm. and those may also head into a primary.
0: They may go into a primary. For State state Treasurer, you have um, Thad Gray, who was able to get the endorsement, and you have Senator Art Linares, um, who had some unfortunate things happen to him at the convention. Um, The town of Portland, their delegates, were not there um, during the, so it was at eight o'clock in the morning. So on Saturday at eight o'clock in the morning at the casino after the previous night, um all the delegates came into the hall a little drowsy, and then some delegates didn't exactly make it to the hall in time. And so um, you know, he thought he had this locked up. And uh, you know, when your delegates don't show up to vote, it becomes a little difficult. But he could primary. Um, and then uh, Attorney General's race, we have uh, Susan Hatfield, who got the endorsement. And then we have um, uh, former Representative John Shaben from Rudding who said that he would likely primary because the delegates are heavily concentrated in eastern Connecticut, which is Susan Hatfield from Pomfret, So that's pretty much her base. Um, But the Republican voters are mostly in western Connecticut, which is, you know, where he's from. So it's kind of interesting.
2: There's a lot to try to keep up with. We'll tweet out some links to your stories. Again, Christine Stewart is editor-in-chief at ctnewsjunkie.com. Let's switch over now to the General Assembly's legislative session. They actually passed a budget on time. They did. It was
0: shocking. (laughs) It was right down to the wire, though. You know, it's like. Um, You know, in high school or college studying for finals, you know, at the very last minute they're pulling an all-nighter and, you know, they're able to get that assignment in right at the deadline. So the budget didn't even become available until... 10.30 10.30 that night, and they were adjourning at midnight. So they were able to pass it and uh, you know get it through two chambers in the hour and a half they had.
2: And uh, this is a budget that didn't really make a lot of hard decisions in terms of trying to uh, save on spending, but they actually restored
0: um, some programs? They did restore some programs. Um, so they made sure to fund the Medicare Savings Program, which pays for the Part B premiums for low-income uh, families. And then they also were at the very last minute able to save Husky A parents, which is about 13,000 low-income parents uh, who are about to lose their health insurance in January. So uh, they were able to restore those things. They do have, you know, they had the buffer. The personal income tax receipts came in much higher than they anticipated. Um, Even though the, the bipartisan budget that they did adopt and pass leaves a $4.5 billion deficit for the next governor and General Assembly.
2: But that'll be after the November elections. Right, that's they can after the November, next yes. Year. <laughs> <laughs> Any big surprises on legislation that made it through or didn't make it through this year?
0: I think that the sexual harassment bill was probably the biggest surprise. So I was shocked um, that they were unable to get this through. And so it did two things. The first thing it did was require employers to give notice to their employees of the sexual harassment policy if they had fewer than 20 employees and would require training of employees that had of companies with more than 20 employees, which apparently wasn't exactly the most controversial part of this. The most controversial part was eliminating the statute of limitations for um, the most serious sex crimes um, for the most serious felonies. Um, at the last minute, the public defender came in and said, you know, th- this would open up the floodgates. We we can't have this. Um, you know, you didn't include any extra money in the budget for us when, when all these cases come forward. And these cases are very difficult um, to defend against since, you know, evidence is eroded um, after years and years and years. And I think that it was surprising because there are 26 states that do not have a statute of limitations, including states like Alabama, Louisiana, Mississippi. Um, You know, Michigan, um, you know, we recently saw Bill Cosby and and Larry Nassar uh, be prosecuted for for crimes that happened, uh, I think, more than 10 years ago.
2: And they wouldn't have been prosecuted here in the state with
0: our laws. They would not, no.
2: Uh, Some other uh, issues that got a lot of attention but then went nowhere uh, once that clock uh, hit the deadline, and that's uh, tolls. Uh, That did not get approved. So how is the state going to pay for what they say is a nearly broke state special transportation fund?
0: So what they're doing is they are expediting the uh, revenue from the new car sales. So the, the sales tax on new cars is going to be expedited into the special transportation fund to keep it solvent. Um, And then they're going to have to deal with, uh, I I guess, a growing deficit. And I mean, it's not going to go away. This is not going to solve the problem. It only um, plugs the problem, I guess, for them to get through to an election.
2: Uh, Were uh, people disappointed that this didn't even make it to a vote?
0: I, I think that at the beginning of the session, there was momentum to see a vote on this. Um, And I think that there was actually some public support behind tolls. I think people really believed it was inevitable. But I don't believe that they waited too long. They waited until the very last minute. They waited till closer to their election campaigns, and it just was politically untenable.
2: Also, other areas where the state could have seen additional revenue, that one would be to legalize marijuana. That went nowhere.
0: Yes, that went nowhere. Um, there was a great sign uh, during the marijuana protest, um, bowls, not tolls. Um, So (laughs) I don't think that, uh, you know, I I think that we have a medical marijuana program here in Connecticut. I don't believe that they're going to move on this until they see what happens in Massachusetts.
2: And also near the end, a lot of lobbying by New Haven and Bridgeport lawmakers to allow uh, open a casino bid process. Yes. Also failed.
0: Also failed. It did get through the House by five votes, um, but it was not called in the Senate where there's a concentration of power. Um, so we're not going to see any casino expansion in the state of Connecticut for, I believe, years.
2: And meanwhile, we're still waiting to see what happens in East Windsor.
0: Yes, <laughs> yes, I know. I think that that's going to be tied up. That's going to be tied up in court for for quite some time. So
2: now, some successes: uh, bills that uh, uh, banning uh, bump stocks uh, in the state yep. of Connecticut, also um, the undocumented student population. They finally saw their ability to get institutional financial aid when they. Pay tuition at a state college or university.
0: Yeah, and that was one of the first bills that the governor actually signed. So that's already law, um, and and that was um, that was a big victory for them.
2: And we're almost out of time, but we should mention that Connecticut now is one of uh, the first states uh, to help extend uh, benefits to veterans with other than honorable discharge uh, if they have uh, post-traumatic stress.
0: Yeah, no, that that was a great, um, a great victory for them. And to be able to get that through, uh, it was something that a lot of people weren't even paying attention to. So it was nice to see that.
2: And as far as uh, the homeowners in Eastern
0: Connecticut that have been dealing with crumbling foundations, also relief maybe for them? Yeah, not necessarily relief, but, you know, I I think that they're on their way to creating something, um, you know, the $12 surcharge on everybody's mortgage uh, insurance policy. It's, you know, it's beginning to... um, I guess we don't even know how, how deep the problem goes, so we'll, we'll see what happens with that.
2: So that might uh, go into a fund to help some of these homeowners. Yeah,
0: it'll, it's going to go into a fund to help these homeowners. It's going to go into the the captive insurance fund to uh, help these homeowners because they uh, you can't replace it. Uh, you have to completely, or you have to completely replace it. You can't repair it. Mm-hmm.
2: Are we, are we missing anything, Christine? A lot to cover <laughs> okay, it's in just been a lot a f- to cover. 15 oh, minutes.
0: National popular vote. We won't have to deal with that issue again. That's off the table now. Mm-hmm. So they passed that. And if there's ever a national popular vote compact, Connecticut will be part of it. We'll have to leave
2: it there, but I'm sure we'll probably revisit that uh, discussion as we get closer to the elections. Christine Stewart, editor-in-chief at ctnewsjunkie.com. Christine, thank you for coming in. We appreciate it. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nopithanshaw. Up next, should Connecticut's constitution be amended to strengthen transparency surrounding the sale of state land? That question's heading to voters this November. We're going to find out more after the break, and you can join the conversation, too, 860 275 Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nolpithanchel. Open space advocates have pushed for more transparency surrounding how lawmakers approve the sale of state lands. Now that question is coming before voters. For more on the backstory on the November ballot question, I want to welcome into the studio Greg Ladke, environment and agriculture reporter for the Hartford Current. Welcome back to the show.
1: Nice to be with you again.
2: Also here, Eric Hammerling, executive director of the Connecticut Forest and Park Association. Nice to see you, Eric.
3: Great to see you, Lucy.
2: So I want to start with Greg. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about uh, this this question of whether our constitution should be amended, requiring more transparency when legislators sell or trade state lands to towns or private parties. How did this come to be at this moment? What was the backstory?
1: Well, for a long, long time, the way uh, state lands often gets transferred to private parties or to local communities has been done in, uh, in a particular conveyance bill each session of the legislature. And it very often happened at the last minute. Um, People in the legislature who made deals would try to stick something in without a lot of publicity, without public hearings. And the reason is that very often these were not deals that they wanted to see in the light of day. Um, There was a a very classic one that actually went through uh, in 20, back in 2010, I believe, or, uh, and it got vetoed by the uh, Governor Rell. That was called the Haddam Land Swap. And a big developer wanted to trade forest land that they owned uh, with state property that was right along the Connecticut River. And it's a beautiful piece of uh, public land on the, uh, along the river. And uh, the developer wanted to put up some kind of resort. And uh, a big time, uh, very powerful legislator decided uh, that this was a good idea. It was in her district, Eileen Daly, uh, and it actually she actually managed to get it through uh, because
2: of tucking in at the last minute. What do you call that? The legislative rats?
1: That's <laughs> what they call them. and and this these conveyance bills are are prime rat hunting territory <laughs> for legislative reporters and uh, public land advocates. Uh, what happened was that uh, Governor Rell vetoed that land swap. Um, But uh, the legislator got it in, got it passed again. Governor Molloy, who needed uh, this woman's support on the budget, um, decided to let it go through. And the only reason it didn't happen was that uh, there was uh, appraisals done. And it turned out for some reason that the state parkland uh, along the river was a lot more valuable than this scrubby forest land that the developer wanted to trade Imagine for. Imagine that. <laughs> yeah. But that wasn't the, that's not the only re, uh, time this has happened. It's uh, um, a number of years ago, a number of, several acres of Hammanasset State Beach Park mm-hmm. uh, got t- traded or given to the town of Madison Um, There was a proposal a few years ago. That one got through. There was another proposal to take part of Silver Sands State Park and give it to the town of Milford, uh, which was basically a way that local people wanted to keep other non-Milford types out of the state Mm -hmm. park because they felt it was like their park, not everybody's park. Mm -hmm. But uh, so that's what the background is. People are very worried that these kinds of deals could – Eat away, erode the state park system and state forests, and uh, so the, there have been—I don't know how long—it's been years of effort to get a constitutional amendment to make sure that this these park lands don't get traded or sold or given away without a lot of scrutiny and without uh, very substantial support in the in the general assembly. No last-minute deals, and uh, the only. Best way people figured to do this was to put a constitutional amendment.
2: Eric Hammerling, again, is in studio with us as well as Greg Latke, who you just heard from. Eric, this has been a priority for your organization. Um, again, why is this constitutional amendment – this is a, a, a better step than legislation, for one?
3: Well, legislation wouldn't do the trick because the conveyance bill that that Greg was talking about – Uh, actually has baked into a language that supersedes any laws that are on the books. Each section of the bill starts, uh, notwithstanding any provision of the general statutes, and then says, we will do X, Y, and Z. So if there were a law that said you couldn't do things like put in a late session amendment or transfer public lands without uh, a public hearing, that would be overridden by the actual language of the conveyance bill. So the only way to ensure that that language... Um, is not overriding all other uh, laws, is to actually have something in the Constitution, which cannot be similarly overridden. Um, So we're really excited that uh, SJ35 was passed this year with enough of a majority to get on the ballot in November. And if uh, it is supported, it would essentially do two things. Uh, First, it would require that before public lands could be sold, swapped, or given away, uh, there would have to be a public hearing. Imagine that. It doesn't seem like such a, a big thing, but obviously because so many things happen at the end of the session and there is no public hearing and uh, very little public uh, even awareness, that's a critical piece of this. The other piece is uh, there will be a two-thirds majority vote in both chambers if the land is held by the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, that would be state parks and forests and wildlife management areas, uh, or the Department of Agriculture. So. Uh, Those two provisions are going to be on the ballot this November, and we're very excited.
2: Why was it this session where you saw uh, this uh, move forward as a ballot question? Because you had to have it in um, twice, at least, uh, the vote on this?
3: Well, there are two ways that something can get on the ballot. One way is to pass a, a, a resolution in two successive legislatures, and it just has to pass by a simple majority or you can do it in one legislative session if it passes both chambers by a three-quarters majority. And so this uh, resolution passed the Senate unanimously and we needed 114 votes to pass the House. Uh, it got 118 votes. So because of the action on, on the resolution this year, it's uh, eligible to be on the ballot.
1: A lot of times uh, it takes years and years of uh, work to get something like this through the General Assembly. Uh, the constitutional amendment we're talking about actually takes power away from the legislators in the General Assembly. They don't like that. They want the flexibility to uh, do favors for people or to do uh, get state land for their own town. Um, so it, it's a it's a way of uh, it, it's difficult to get them to do this, and it takes several years usually to uh, convince them to give up their powers.
2: Uh, this is where we live. Uh, today we're talking about a ballot question heading to the voters in November. Uh, in studio with me, Greg Ladke, environment and agriculture reporter for the Hartford Current. Also, Eric Hammerling, executive director of the Connecticut Forest and Park Association. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Now, um, now that this uh, question is headed to the ballot, how difficult will it be uh, to get the word out about and understand, let voters understand uh, what they're voting on? And sometimes even the way a question is worded can be confusing,
3: that's true. And actually, the last uh, attempt to amend the, the state constitution failed because I think there wasn't a great understanding of what the question was, or and the wording was a bit confusing. Uh, we are constrained in the wording by what was in the actual resolution that passed the General Assembly. So it is slightly dense language, uh, but, but it, I think most people will understand the basic concept of... You know, if you think about a state park or a state forest, you would assume that it's protected. It's not. Uh, the General Assembly has this authority to be able to sell, swap, or give it away. Um, and this was really to make sure that this is done in the full light of day if it is going to be done. Um, we think it's you know absolutely critical. I think people will understand, we have constraints on what we can do as a 501c3 nonprofit organization. So uh, there will have to be a, an, an entity created uh, that's able to do a bit more uh, education on this effort and, and will be uh, helping to make that happen.
1: Yeah, I think that once it's, it, it's explained to the general public uh, you're going to see overwhelming support. I think most people already believe that state park and forest land and uh, wildlife areas are permanently protected. And it comes t- as a shock to them generally if you explain, no, what the legislature has done in the past, they can undo at their whim. And uh, so I think that if, if the understanding is out there, it's going to be uh, very easy to pass it.
2: Um, I asked about the wording of the question. Can you give us an idea of how it is worded uh, on uh, the actual uh, legislation that was passed? <laughs>
1: I, I can uh, uh This is the language. Shall the Constitution of the state be amended to require one a public hearing and the enactment of legislation limited in subject matter to the transfer, sale, or disposition of state-owned or state-controlled real property or interest in real property in order for the General Assembly to require a state agency to sell, transfer, or dispose of any real property or interest that in that real property that's under the custody or control of the agency. Uh, And it goes on uh, to specify that uh, that we're only talking about the departments of agriculture and uh, Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. So basically, we're talking about state-protected lands um, for open space purposes.
3: And those are the ones that would receive the two-thirds vote. Uh, Everything uh, before it could be conveyed would have to get a public hearing and at least get a, a majority vote. But that extra two-thirds is for those special uh, lands of great value.
2: Give us an idea, um, because of the two-thirds vote uh, mechanism in there, um, some of the legitimate reasons that these swap and transfers could still go forward um, despite this uh, this ballot question.
3: Sure. And, and it's a great question because uh, you know I've had uh, legislators and others say, well, wait, you're just proposing this because you don't want to ever see a swap or a transfer of, of uh, public land. Well, if you can imagine uh, the Hadam land swap, but in reverse. What if uh, for uh, some you know relatively low value public land, you were able to get some very high value public land in a prime location like along the Connecticut River? That would be the kind of uh, swap that we could certainly endorse. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think there are lots of examples of uh, how you can actually improve public lands through uh, that mechanism, but we but in, in either uh, instance, we want to make sure that it's done publicly. And it has to be, you know, an overwhelming benefit for the public. And that's what uh, would be necessitating a two-thirds vote.
2: Greg Ladke, what are the expectations this could pass this fall?
1: I think that it's pretty good. Uh, As I said before, the general public has an understanding and and a belief in protecting public open space and public lands. I think you see that uh, in polls that uh, whenever they're asked. Uh, so I think as long as that understanding of what this is about gets out there, it's a very good chance that it will pass.
2: This is where we live. In studio with me, Greg Ladke, environment agriculture reporter for the Hartford Current, and Eric Hammerling, executive director of the Connecticut Forest and Park Association. We have a couple more minutes, and because we're talking about what was uh, – uh, um, some accomplishments of uh, the General Assembly this session. Uh, Greg, since you're here, can you walk us through some other environmental legislation that um, we should be paying attention to?
1: Yeah, they uh, did do some things the, relating to climate and energy conservation. They restored some money that had been sort of uh, swept up uh, in pri- last year. Uh, they took a lot of money uh, from energy conservation funds, uh, to help solve these huge budget deficits, they restored about ten million dollars of that. Uh, advocates are saying that's really not enough. We need to restore it all because that money is being taken from uh, ratepayers. When they pay their energy bills, they put uh, they pay a small surcharge, and that goes into this energy conservation funds. B- several of them. Um, so that was a, a partial win. They also um, included uh, doing more or, or improving uh, the goals for energy conservation uh, for the, on the state plan. Uh, they did also make changes in, uh, in the way solar power is uh, regulated. Uh, some of it was good. It uh, m- means that cities and towns can use more solar power. They were sort of capped, and that's been re- removed. But it <clears throat> excuse me, it will also uh, could cause some problems for small homeowners um, looking to put uh, solar panels on their roofs. So we have a uh, it's sort of a up and down scenario.
2: Uh, we just got a, a tweet from a listener. What about the damage to the solar industry because of changing net metering?
1: Yeah, the way that, it's a very complicated system for deciding uh, how you, homeowners will get charged for the power that they're using or they're contributing, to, uh, what they're gonna get the benefits from, the power that they're contributing to the net, um, the energy grid. Uh, the solar industry is very worried that the changes that were we'll made will make it less uh, profitable for homeowners to put solar power on top their on their homes. And that, they're worried, is going to hurt the solar power industry in Connecticut, which has been growing by leaps and bounds over the last five, ten years. Uh, so that's what the problem is there. They're they're worried that they're having going to have to lay off people.
2: Also, a sewage right to know. Can you explain that?
1: Uh, that is uh, – actually, I didn't cover that one. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to admit I'm not completely uh, clear on that one.
2: Well, then we'll just move on from there. But um, Eric, since you're in studio with me, uh, Eric Hammerling, Executive Director of the Connecticut Forest and Park Association. Last time you were on, we were talking about the Passport to Parks and uh, residents who feel that the state should be investing in the state parks. We know that we enjoy them uh, throughout the state. Um, has that that money, uh, I'm just curious if there's that program uh, after this session, uh, still in process in terms of the types of uh, resources getting put towards our parks?
3: Absolutely. And if, if Greg has- had not mentioned it. I, I would uh, certainly uh, be talking a bit about the passport to parks. Uh, last year, as part of the the budget agreement in uh, on Halloween appropriately, um, there was this uh, passport to parks, which, uh, on one hand uh, is a $10 fee that people pay through uh, their car registration. Uh, on the other hand, that's the money that's generated actually helps to operate parks, so much so that there's free access uh, to all of the state parks, which is a wonderful thing to get more people out to the parks. Uh, we were concerned because in that legislation, there it wasn't clear whether it should be a part of the general fund or a separate non-lapsing account. Uh, And that had to be clarified this year. So indeed, they clarified it as a separate non-lapsing account, which means that it's harder for those funds to be swept or diverted to another purpose. It takes actually a vote of the legislature to do that. It can't be done unilaterally by a governor. um, And we are very happy that that has made it through as well. So that, that we would certainly add as one of those big accomplishments this session.
2: We'll have to leave it there, but I want to thank Eric Hammerling, Executive Director of the Connecticut Forest and Park Association, for coming in today. Also, Greg Ladke, Environment and Agriculture Reporter for the Hartford Current. Thank you both. Thank you, Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Up next, controversial merger of Connecticut's 12 community colleges. Didn't get approval from an accrediting body, but the plan isn't dead yet. We'll find out more after the break, and we want to hear from you. 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Where We Live's Making Her Story series highlights the career paths of prominent women with ties to Connecticut. Join me tomorrow, May 15th at 6 p.m., for a conversation with Canton native Carolyn Miles. She's president and CEO of Save the Children. You can learn more and reserve your tickets at WNPR.org. Now, what's next for Connecticut State Colleges and Universities System? Now that an accrediting party, accrediting body rather, has rejected a plan to merge 12 community colleges into one school, we've had President Mark Ojekian on the show a couple of times to talk about his students' first plan. Despite the accrediting body's decision, Ojekian has now told the Board of Regents he wants to find a way to move the merger plan forward. Now, details are forthcoming this summer, and we hope to have Mr. Ojekian on the show in the near future to talk about next steps. But But we wanted to get reaction from faculty, staff, and students. So if you are a student or you work for the Connecticut State Universities and Colleges system, you can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Joining us now by phone is Lois Amy, president of the Norwalk Community College Senate and director of educational technology at Norwalk. Uh, Lois, welcome to the show.
4: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
2: Also with us is David Blitz, Professor of Philosophy at Central Connecticut State University and member of the CCSU Senate. David, uh, welcome to where we live. Thank you. Now, I want to start with you, Lois. You've, you were on our show uh, earlier, and you've been an outspoken critic of this consolidation proposal. Uh, now that this regional accreditation body uh, said no to this first version of the plan, what is your reaction to Mr. Ojekian saying that they, they want to try to move forward?
4: Um, my reaction is is kind of negative it's so NEASC, the accrediting agency didn't actually reject the student's first plan they did reject it as a substantive change, but they also were very, very critical of the um of the plan itself and so I think there needs to be um uh, a time out here where people sit back and and consider what's going on and how to do something, but to do something with the input of faculty, staff, and administration um, who have been pretty much ignored during this whole students' first planning and proposal as happened prior to this with Transform 2020 and a previous president, and it just keeps going on and on and nothing seems to improve.
2: Now, Lois, remind our listeners uh, about the student's first plan. Uh, there's three parts to it um, besides just merging um, and how they were trying to get to this cost savings.
4: Well, there's, uh, the, the, the major component of it was the merger of the 12 community colleges into one large community college of Connecticut. Which would take away our accreditation. It would take away our ability to react to our community needs, our student needs. Um, it would uh, cause a lot of problems with um, having to deal with curriculum over over 12 campuses that are all over the state of Connecticut. Uh, one of the um, one of the Concerns that NIAS pointed out is that uh, it was not clear to them that faculty would be able to oversee quality academic programs across 12 campuses, and it also believes that there are not enough administrators uh, in the plan to oversee and evaluate all the various components. So um, NIAS had some some strong problems with it, and the second component of it was uh, well, there was I guess combining. Um, back office functions, but none of that has ever been clear as to how they were going to do that or whether or not we actually had the infrastructure to be able to do it. And and there are actually some things that could be done um, very easily that are not being done, like um, creating one single application for students to apply to all 12 community colleges. That should be a no-brainer. That should have happened six or seven years ago. Mm.
2: This is where we live. Uh, today, again, we're talking about next steps for the Connecticut State Universities and Colleges System. Uh, with us by phone is Lois Amy, Director of Educational Technology at Norwalk Community College and President of the Norwalk Community College Senate, and David Blitz, Professor of Philosophy at CCSU, a member of the CCSU Senate. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Uh, David, uh, tell us uh, your perspective um, from uh, the university system and uh, your, I believe, that that uh, the Senate called for Ojakian to resign.
5: Yes, we did. We had a resolution which was adopted uh, with only one negative vote uh, by secret ballot. Um, the first part of it called for President Ojekian to resign. And our reasoning was that he hasn't listened to faculty who have criticized the Students' First Plan from its inception. He hasn't listened to the NIASC accrediting agency, which has rejected the implementation of this plan. And he has stated that he can no longer hold the line on campus closures or uh, student tuition increases. As a result, we find that uh, he really should be replaced.
4: Mm.
2: So, uh, when you hear from the Board of Regents uh, last week, uh, President and they're trying to come up with uh, another proposal uh, to put forth. I mean, where do you think they should go in terms of of cost savings? Again, we're hearing that the uh, the deficits over the next year will be uh, twenty million, not in, not including fringe benefits. Uh, if this plan isn't the way to go, uh, what should uh, the state look towards?
5: Well, the plan claims to save something like between 20 and $40 million per year. But the Board of Regents has spent approximately that amount, $35 million per year, on the system office on Woodland Street. And all we have for that since 2011 is a series of failed plans for reorganization, of which uh, Students First is just the culmination. Uh, the Board of Regents has spent more than $250 million since its inception. Uh, some people say that uh, why don't faculty except what is supposedly a sound business policy to save money. But I have to ask, what business plan would spend a quarter of a billion dollars, that's a billion with a B, to say to not save 20 to $40 million dollars per year? That's a situation we have. And one of the things that we're calling for is for the legislature to reconsider the whole Board of regent organization
1: mm.
5: and come up with a better uh, structure for the governance of public higher education in the state.
2: So a lot of money uh, spent on admin. Lois, what's your reaction to that proposal?
4: I absolutely agree. A a quarter of a billion dollars spent since uh, the Board of Regents uh, was created in 2011 is absolutely insane. What could we have done with that money? Hired more advisors? Hired more faculty? Um, We could have done uh, lots of things. There's a part of the proposal uh, that they have right now within Students First. Um, suggests that they'll save $1.4 million by replacing department chairs with associate academic deans. Well, we looked at that, and we were not convinced. So we did a little research, and what it uh, what it uh, what comes out of that is that it doesn't actually save anything. It costs an additional $3.9 million. Mm-hmm. So you know, there's all kinds of obfuscation and, and fuzzy math going on here. Uh, For example, the fiscal year 19 system office budget is scheduled to increase by $2.4 million while the community college budget is being decreased by $5.9 million. How is that possibly students first? They have no students at 61 Woodland Street. They're not accredited. I don't even know what's going on there. Oh, and the likelihood that they, they don't want to
2: dissolve the Board of Regents and save money uh, at this admin office. Lois, uh, are you
4: fearful that uh, community colleges could be closed now? Well, that was one of the threats that uh, President Ojekian came out with when he talked about increasing tuition and closing, closing colleges. Um, uh, there was a statement at the BOR meeting last Thursday made by Louise Williams, who's a faculty member at Central uh, Connecticut State University and she noted that the silence of many at the community colleges should not be misconstrued as support for students first and to back that up someone came to me the other day after a meeting where I had spoken out against the proposal and said to me in private that while he agreed with ninety-eight percent of what I said he could not speak out in agreement because his school was one of the ones on, on the list that might be closed. What about our
2: tuition increases? That's something that could be happening as well? that's what President Odekian has threatened. Mm-hmm. So what, what I'm, I guess I'm trying to get at is what um, what could be a solution again for what they're saying, which is uh, a multi-million dollar deficits in the next two years uh, if they don't get uh, this merger plan in process. Uh, is that likely to happen? You're going to see tuition uh, increases and possibly some close, uh, community colleges closing. Well, again, I I think- Go ahead, David.
5: Uh, Connecticut needs public higher education to help uh, revitalize the state economy and to empower our students. We can't afford to have hundreds of millions of dollars spent on a system office which only produces failed plans. Simply reducing the size of the system office by one-third would save $12 million per year. Uh, Another suggestion which I've made is that we look at going to uh, open uh, open source software rather than spending millions of dollars on proprietary software from Microsoft and Adobe. There are many other ideas that we could have for saving money. But fundamentally, the the issue is that the state needs to fully fund public higher education. And we hope that in the upcoming elections uh, in the fall, that that become an issue. At the very least, that candidates for the legislature and the governor promise to stop the decades-long decline in the total and percentage of funding for public higher education in the state
2: uh, meanwhile uh, you're still uh, educating students uh, what are you hearing from them in terms of the messaging about uh, you know again these plans to either to move forward to consolidate or the fact that uh, there are um, possible cuts coming and tuition increases happening david
5: well there's concern amongst those students who are following it closely uh, most students are busy Studying for their course, and that's actually where they just finished their exams. So that has been their focus of, 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 of interest. Uh, but what we can say is that really this was never a student's first plan. It was a system office first plan. And because it started off with the idea of saving money rather than improving the educational experience of the students, it was pretty well doomed to failure from the beginning. Never mind the fact that faculty input was discarded, and now even the criticisms of NEASC are not being taken into account
2: well, we're, we we want to keep this conversation going, and if you want to join the conversation, eight six zero two seven five seven two six six, um you can join the conversation again, or you can uh, tweet us at where we live, find us on Facebook, at where we live. Um, we wanted to also mention that we did reach out to President Marco Jakian and we hope to have him on uh, in a future show. Uh, but we I, you know we've we've also heard that and um, since we have a staff member and faculty member within the system on, um, you know, in terms of challenges moving forward, you know, is enrollment down? And I, I'm just curious uh, if you could talk us through some of the challenges that you're seeing, particularly at your own uh, campuses. I'll start with you, Lois.
4: Um, well, I can say that our, our summer enrollment is uh, up by about 20 percent uh, the last time I, I, I heard. And um, the fall in enrollment right now is is about flat, but that's pretty normal for a community college. Students don't register until until later on when they've got their work schedule straightened out and they've got they've actually got the money to, to pay and so on and so forth. So uh what we're doing is uh, we're not filling positions and um that's a problem because we're all doing double duty and all kinds of different work and um but we're trying to hold the line as much as we can and, and um we're being hurt. And I don't know, you know, um, quite frankly, as far as my understanding is, the state of Connecticut is as wealthy as it ever has been. I'm not sure why uh, the public higher education system is is, um, being uh, strangled so much. Again, I'll go back to the fact that the system office budget is increasing while our budget is decreasing. Why is that happening?
2: Uh, Marco Jakin is actually calling into the show. Um, uh, President Jakin. we have just a couple of minutes. Uh, if you want to go ahead and respond to what uh, the staff and faculty members have been saying.
6: Um, sure. Well, uh, good morning. Just, uh, just a couple of uh, quick points to make, and uh, um, I appreciate everybody's commentary um, on this. Um, <clears throat> I would just like to point out that doing nothing in the current fiscal condition that we're in uh, is not an option, number one. Um, number two, while we have had uh, hiring freezes um, here for, for about the past uh, two years, there's never been a request for a faculty member that's been um, not approved. We believe that the crux of any student's first initiative is around teaching and learning and student services that need to be provided um, at the at the local campus level. <clears throat> I will also point out, that the system office budget has not increased um, over the past few years. As a matter of fact, the number of people uh, working in the system office um, has been reduced by about a third. And I would also point out that about 65% of everybody in the system office is represented by a collective bargaining unit, which means there is a layoff protection provision through uh, fiscal 2021. Um, And many of these people provide system-wide Services, especially in the area of, of information technology. So if that was to be replicated on every campus, that would be clearly more expensive. So I'm always willing to listen to constructive um, ideas about how to move our community colleges forward. Uh, but when we're looking at, uh, in the long term, I think fiscal 2021, a $65 million deficit at our community colleges, somebody has to step up mm-hmm. And make some tough decisions. But I'm always happy to work with everybody throughout the system, but clearly, doing nothing is not an option because, in the end, it's the students who are going to suffer, and there'll be many students, especially those in underrepresented groups, that'll be left behind.
2: President Drake, will you come on the show just so we can have a, a longer conversation on this? I understand you're, having, you're working on a, a forthcoming plan. Something else has to be submitted to this accrediting body by July.
6: I'm, I'm happy to come on anytime you want me, Lucy.
2: Uh, Thank you for calling in. Uh, Just to clarify, I just wanted to go back to uh, David Blitz. Uh, Did you want to react to what uh, Marco Jakin has said?
5: Well, the analysis which I did of the system office staff shows that there are 144 people working at the system office, 67 of whom are uh, in information technology. I can only speak for Central Connecticut State University, but we supply all of our own uh, IT services. The one part of uh, Students First, which was affects the university is the idea of consolidating uh, back-office functions. Uh, President Olljaki didn't mention that in what he just said, but we're especially opposed to that. We don't consider it back-office functions. We consider that to be our valued and needed support staff. And we can't properly run our university without local control over uh, human resources, information technology, uh, purchasing and budget.
2: We're going to have to leave it there, but um, as we mentioned, we'd like to have uh, President Marco Ojekian on the show for a longer conversation to take more questions and comments from faculty, staff, and students. I want to thank David Blitz, Professor of Philosophy at CCSU. Thanks, David, for your time. Thank you. Also, Lois Amy from Norwalk Community College. I'm Lucy nalpith Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Uh, we'll talk to you again tomorrow. Thanks.